You guys, uh, really great to be with you this morning. We're going through our sermon series called The Cross and the Crown, uh, going through the book of Matthew. If you're newer to Southlands, uh, we love going through Scripture, even the, I mean, what, what's always fun is like the easy parts, right? Uh, when Jesus is talking about how he loves you, and um, Jesus is, it, well, it's easy for me to preach to this stuff, but uh, why we, we systematically go through Scripture as well is because sometimes you come along Scripture where it's not always easy to preach through, and it feels like, I think I've said this every week, it feels like, man, Jesus is just like not pulling any punches with us. He's just like, okay, this is what I think about when you're offended. This is what I think about marriage and divorce. This is what I think about this, what I think about this. And every week we're like, oh, oh, uh, what's that song? Hurts so good. Hurts so good. Come on. Come on, you know. Come on, baby. That's a John Cougar Mellencamp for you. Anybody interested? Um, this morning we get, we, it's not so tough. Um, but man, it's still a challenge. And I, I love that about our faith, that um, it's not based on our own ability. Uh, it's not based on um, like, you know, when preachers say, come to Jesus and your life will be so much better and it'll be tiptoeing through the tulips kind of thing. Man, that's not Christianity. It's come to Jesus and come and die. Isn't that an exciting faith, <laughs> you know? Um, but it's not just come and die, it's come and die, and I will give you the strength that you need in order to live this Christian faith. And we're going to look at what it means to uh, be great. So here's what I want to do this morning. Uh, will you humor me for a second? I'm going to read a, a, a story about somebody who has probably affected everybody in this room, whether you like it or not. And uh, see if, well, I'll, I'll, you'll see who it is because I'm going to read the name, so it's not like a big secret. So I thought it was going to be clever, but I'm not going to be that clever this morning. Have you been rejected or disappointed time and time again? Well, Colonel Harlan Sanders, founder of Kentucky Fried Chicken, did. But he took his failures and didn't just make lemonade. He made the world a better place. Okay, that's objection, or subjective. Um, <laughs> Sanders was born in 1890 in Henryville, Indiana. When he was six years old, his father passed away, leaving Sanders to cook and care for his siblings. In seventh grade, he dropped out of school and left home to go to work as a farmhand, already turning into a tough cookie. At 16, he faked his age to enlist in the United States Army. He's like uh, Captain America, right? And... Uh, after being honorably discharged a year later, he got hired by the railway as a laborer. However, he got fired for fighting with a coworker. While he worked for the rail railway, he studied law until he ruined his legal career by getting into another fight. Sanders was forced to move back in with his mom, get a job selling life insurance. And guess what? He got fired for insubordination. <laughs> but this guy wouldn't give up. In 1920, he founded a ferry boat company. Later, he tried cashing in his ferry boat business to create a lamp manufacturing company, company only to find out that uh, another company already sold a better version of his lamp. Poor guy couldn't catch a break. It wasn't until age 40 that he began selling chicken dishes in a service station, like a gas station. As he began to advertise his food, an argument with a competitor resulted in a deadly shootout. I don't know. So I guess he didn't, so Colonel Sanders was a murderer? I don't know what's happening here. Where did I leave off? A deadly shootout. Four years later, 
He bought a motel which burned to the ground along with his restaurant. (coughs) Yet this determined man rebuilt and ran a new motel until World War II forced him to close it down. Following the war, he tried to franchise his restaurant. His recipe was rejected 1,009 times before anyone accepted it. Sanders' secret recipe was coined Kentucky Fried Chicken and quickly became a hit. However, the booming restaurant was crippled when an interstate opened nearby, so Sanders sold it and pursued his dream of spreading KFC franchise and hiring KFC workers all across the country. After years of failures and misfortunes, sleeping in his car, Sanders finally hit it big. KFC expanded internationally, and he sold the company for $2 million, which would be today $15.3 million. Even today, Sanders remains central in KFC's branding. His face still appears in their logo. His goatee, white suit, and western string tie continue to symbolize delicious country fried chicken all over the world. What do you guys hear when you hear that story? You get inspired? You get, man, that guy failed and failed and failed and failed. He didn't give up. Some of us, you know, if you're kind of A-type personalities, or maybe you're in sales, maybe you're, you're a business owner, and you're hearing that, and you're like, yeah, this is what, it, this is what it, I'm going to do. I'm going to be great. Or maybe you have a project at work, or may, I don't know, whatever your ambitions are, you hear this, and you're like, yes, greatness, greatness. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at greatness. And what I want to suggest to us is that Jesus, this is total bait and switch this morning, all right? I'm just, just not trying to manipulate anybody. I'm just going to tell you up front, it's bait and switch, okay? Uh, we all have this kind of understanding of what greatness is. If, if I were to say, what, what makes someone great? Who, who is great? Uh, a lot of us might refer to the story of Colonel Sanders, um, we see Nike ads, you know, the, the talk about greatness. I, I just Googled the word greatness this week, and all these uh, YouTube videos of Nike come up, you know, and it's these ordinary people overcoming extraordinary circumstances, finding the power within themselves to be great. Most of us would view greatness that way. Most of us would think of like some, some insurmountable odds that we need to overcome and somehow we end up at the top of the pile and we're able to brag to everybody and everybody looks to our story and goes, oh my gosh, what a great person. Um, but that's not really how scripture describes greatness. So we're gonna look and see uh, how it does. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 20. And we're going to read verses 17 through 28. It's kind of a chunky portion of Scripture. So hang in there with us. If you don't have your Bibles, uh, the, the Scripture will be up on the screen. We're reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Uh, so it may be a little bit different than what a lot of us have. But this is what the Word of God says in verse 17 of chapter 20. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, 
What, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Verse 24, and when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to him and said, uh, called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for ransom for many. Let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, we submit our hearts to you this morning. We submit our will to you this morning. We, we surrender who we are over to you. And Jesus, we ask again, as we approach your scripture, will you change us? Will you transform us from the inside out? Will you examine our hearts? Show us where we're lacking. Show us where we're not surrendered to you. Show us where we, we, we want to be our own masters and captains of our own lives. And help us, Holy Spirit, we ask this morning, to surrender ourselves to you. Help us, Holy Spirit, to see what you see. Help us, Holy Spirit, to become more like Jesus through your power. And we, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So just a little, uh, little bit of context here, what's going on in this portion of Scripture. So I don't know if you noticed it, but Jesus has said for the third time, now he's told his disciples, this is the third time he's told them, hey, by the way, uh, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be, uh, whipped and persecuted, and I'm, I'm actually going to be tortured, um, and, but I'll, be, I'll raise again on the third day. And they, they, they just don't get it. They kind of hear it, and what's funny is they go, oh yeah, that, uh, okay, hey, by the way, we'd like to sit at your right hand and your left hand. I mean, it's just like totally clueless. Um, and they, it's just like total disregard for Jesus in his way. And, you know, I think a lot of that was the fact that the Holy Spirit hadn't yet revealed to them who Jesus completely was or what his mission was. And so we can like try to bag on these disciples and go, man, you guys are such idiots. Um, but the reality is for any of us here even this morning, without the power of the Holy Spirit revealing the truth to us in our hearts, we're just the same as the disciples, right? I mean, I know I am. Um, and so there's some funny stuff here. They, they don't get it. It's the third time. Um, and then you see something else here. It says the sons of Zebedee. Now, if you don't know what that means, that's actually translated the Sons of Thunder, okay? Now, where did they get this nickname from? Uh, you'll see in the, in the other Gospels, you'll see in other portions back, there were times where, like, Jesus would be walking around ministering. People would reject Jesus' uh, ministry, and James and John, the Sons of Thunder, the Sons of Zebedee, would say, Lord, would you like us to call down fire upon them, right? And Jesus like, you guys, just, like, relax, Okay? <laughs> But here's the funny thing. These guys are called the Sons of Thunder, and then who do they get? They get their mommy to come up and ask Jesus 
so that they could sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. Hey, uh, mommy. Now, a, a lot of uh, uh, um, smart people about the Bible, what do you call them? <laughs> Theologians, commentaries, will say that this lady was probably married. She's probably the auntie of Jesus. James and John were the, the cousins of, of Jesus. And um, so she's probably trying to say like, hey, you know, hey, these are your cousins. And uh, the, the disciples at this time, they, they think Jesus, remember, is going to rule in a political way. They think he's going to come into Jerusalem on a, on a noble steed with a sword in his hand, a knight in shining armor. There's going to be a horse and it's like, you know, like, that's the noise a horse does when it's like really awesome. Does all this kind of stuff. And he's going to, and he's going to just kick butt and like sword flying everywhere. And the Romans are going to be left desolate all over the ground. And they're like, yeah, this is going to be awesome, Jesus. Put us at your right hand and your left hand. They just don't understand why Jesus has come. And so the auntie's kind of saying, hey, when you are the ruler, when you're the king, set up my boys. Set up my boys. Um, and then what's even funnier is you see in chapter 18, if you were to go back, the disciples are arguing about who is going to be the greatest among them. I don't even know how that conversation even takes place. Could you imagine like me and some friends, we're all hanging around and I'm, I'm just like lounging, you know, we're fitting on like, you know, I got a toothpick and I'm, you know, guys, I was just thinking, I've been watching you. Then I've been looking at me. I think I'm the greatest among you guys. And then the guys are like, no, you're not. I'm the greatest. And then someone else, no, no, no. I'm, I mean, how do you even have an argument about that? This is ridiculous. Like, what is happening here? And so if we are this morning going to subject ourselves to Scripture, we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be great? What does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? Is it, is it arguing like the disciples? Is it we all get together and we measure our greatness and go, well, I've got so many sales this year and so blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, well, I've got this and this and I've got four cars and you know, all this stuff. Or, man, you don't know what I overcame in life. You don't know the obstacles that I had to get through. And now I'm over here and we all go, oh, whoa, you are the greatest if that's what greatness is, then we're left to our own subjective ideas, but Scripture thankfully doesn't do that for us this morning. And so I want to give us, uh, of course, three points that I think that greatness helps us, or what Jesus helps us understand what greatness is. And notice, if you will, as we're going through these things, that greatness has nothing to do with being the master, being the ruler, being the man, being like in charge, being the one who everyone's head turns when they, like E.F. Hutton, if you're old enough to remember those commercials, like, ooh, when he talks, everybody listens. That's not what greatness is. Greatness, you'll see, has to do with surrender and serving. So what is it, how does scripture define greatness? Number one, true greatness isn't selfish ambition. True greatness isn't selfish ambition. In verse 24, it says this, And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, so the, the two brothers get their mommy to come up and ask Jesus, Jesus, you know, when you're the king, make sure, will you, will you put my boys at your right and left, and they're going to rule with you. 
And then the, the Bible says that the other 10 disciples heard that this happened and they were upset. Now, I think they weren't upset that the two were so audacious in their asking. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they asked such an ask, right? Like, oh, why would you ask something like, like, don't you know, like you're not, no, I think they were indignant because they were like, man, why didn't we think of that first? These two got the jump on us. The other 10 were like, well, shoot, what are we gonna do now? We're just gonna be like subject to these guys? I know them. I've seen them pick their nose. I don't think they should be sitting at the right and the left of Jesus. True greatness doesn't come from being selfishly ambitious. How do you respond when somebody at work gets a promotion and you don't? Or maybe you're at school and somebody, you know, uh, cheated on a test and you worked really hard for that? Does that make you indignant on the inside? I deserve this. I'm the one who paid the price. So, so, so and so was just smoozing up to the boss. How come they're getting the promotion? I've been here longer. I've done all the work. I've stayed the long hours. Or maybe even a more telling question is how do you react when somebody fails who's kind of in your same lane? Do you kind of go, yes, this is gonna make me look better? It's going to make, you know, me stand out. Now I've just got one less competitor in my way. I've got one less person who's standing in my way of greatness. Maybe it's not even a job situation. I don't know what it is, but how do you feel when somebody either gets ahead or somebody fails? Does it put a little bit of glee in your heart at moments? Man, if it does, you know that you have some selfish ambition. Maybe siblings you know, like, ooh, you ever have, like, sometimes my kids do this, like, especially a younger one, he's, he's in this tattletale, uh, you know, phase of life. He's like, Dad, Sam's eating in the living room, right? And Sam's like, no, I'm not. That's how Sam talks with the Judah. <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, why does Judah do that? Because he wants to get ahead. He wants Sam to get, like, pushed down, and he wants himself to be elevated. We do that. This is what Paul said to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. Not the kind of brotherly affection I just described there. And then it says something even really audacious. It says, outdo one another in showing honor. What? This is something I tell my kids all the time. You know, they're, you got more ice cream than I get, right? And I say, guys, what if you were to outdo each other in love? What if you were to outdo each other in honor? Don't I say that? I say that all the time. What kind of relationship would my kids have? What kind of relationship, what kind of church would Southland's Chino be if we were ambitious in honoring one another? If we were ambitious in trying to outdo each other in honor and love and service, we would be a radically different kind of church. Friends, that's what greatness is. 
That's what God's called us to. How can I serve? How can I love? How can I honor this person? Not just when it works for me, but how can I outdo? Man, I would love for us to have like competitions of honor. (laughs) I mean, imagine that. Not like I'm better than you at honoring. I'm not saying that. Because then that negates it. But you guys get the point of what I'm saying. Number two, you guys doing okay? We're just trying to try to fly through these. Number two, not only is true greatness not selfishly ambitious, true greatness serves and slaves. Ooh, this is what Jesus said. Verses 25 and 27, again, of chapter 27. But Jesus called them to him and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, so basically the way this world operates, the way this kingdom works, lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. He's saying, friends, followers, disciples of mine, people who put your hope and your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the way the world operates is to say, in order for you to be great, you have to have an entourage, right? So LeBron James comes walking in. Well, before LeBron James even walks in the door, he's got six people like doing all this stuff for him, right? Hey, man, did you get like my green M&Ms? Are they all set to go, you know? And hey, hey, I like my, uh, my room at exactly 72 degrees, and I have to have this kind of champion towel, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And like, why? Because this entourage is like trying to build off of his greatness. And his greatness, he's so great what do they call him? King James, right? He's so great that he has his entourage doing all this stuff for him. He lords it over them. He rules over them. Jesus says, man, if you're a disciple, if you're in the kingdom, my kingdom, it's upside down. It shouldn't be, and it won't be, and it's not so among you. He continues, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. What Jesus has done here is he has rocked their world. Up to this point, everybody thought greatness was I will be king, I will be the man, I'll be the lord of the manor, I'm the guy who tells everybody what to do, and that means that I am great. And Jesus comes and he counterculturally comes into this uh, uh, mindset and he says, no, 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 listen. That's the way of that kingdom. My kingdom says, if you want to be great, you must be the servant. Remember that song in the 70s? Some of you guys are you're singing it in your head right now. If you, if you want to be first, you're going to be last. You're going to be the slave. Man, especially in an American culture that we bring into the church, those words feel almost blasphemous, almost wrong. If, if, if I am going to be a great Christian, that means I'm going to be on top. Let me, let me just, can I just be real honest with you this morning? Not that I wouldn't be honest. Hopefully, I'm always honest when I'm preaching. I was thinking about this, and man, I was convicted this week. I was thinking about our church. 
We've been going for about a year and a half. And to, to be honest, sometimes delusions of grandeur start flowing through my mind about what we're going to be and who we're supposed to be as a church. It's like, we're going to be a great church. We're going to be a church that, you know, kicks butt, takes names, and, you know, almost like what, what the disciples thought about who Jesus was. If we're going to swing the sword and everybody's going to bow down to Southlands Chino, you know, not that people will actually bow down, but just like, man, we're going to do great things. Everyone's going to, like, know who we are. And, and I don't think that when I was thinking about these greatness of Southlands, did servanthood really come into the picture of greatness? I don't know if it does for you. When you say, man, I'm a Christian. I follow God with my whole heart. I want to be a great Christian. When we say great, I don't know if servants, service or slave comes into our thought when we think about greatness. But if we want to be disciples of Jesus, that's the way he defines greatness. Man, so different. So different. A true servant, a couple, couple little helpful things to help you understand what true service is. A true servant doesn't have to be thanked. A true servant doesn't need their service to feel good. You, know, you ever like go and like help the poor, you go on a mission trip, and you know, you're like, how was your trip? Oh man, it was so good. I feel so good about myself because I served these people. That's not service. That's selfishness. You know, I'll, I'll wash the dishes sometimes. Um, <laughs> and Mar- Marianne said congrats. Yes, sometimes. That's right. You're, um, and, you know, and I'll be honest, sometimes I'll wash the dishes and I try to clean up the kitchen real nice. And I'm hoping that Marianne will see my good works. <laughs> she does. But sometimes I'm... I have to like make a comment that I washed the dishes. I'm like, babe, I, uh, I cleaned up. And sometimes she's like, thanks. And I'm like, so do I get anything else from that? Why am I serving her? Because I'm expecting some kind of reward in return. That's not service. That is selfishness. I'm doing so that I will get. Man, isn't our Christianity like that sometimes too? Don't we sometimes view our Christianity? God, I uh, actually gave above and beyond my tithe this month. I, uh, by the way, I also went to Mexico and helped with the orphanage down in uh, Rancho Hermosa. And God's like, thank you. <laughs> and you're like, so, um, going to get that bonus? And God's like, no. That's what I called you to do. Here's what Philippians says. Paul, that darn Paul, he's so good. He says this in chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. says, do nothing, nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. I mean, in, in like all of life, yeah. Do nothing from selfish ambition. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Man, you know, the the servant part, if you've been a Christian for any part of many time, you're like, okay, I get behind that. I get, I get, I understand the word servant, but the word slave, Jesus, that's like, I don't know. That sounds a little like demeaning. That sounds a little hardcore. The thing about a slave, it doesn't have any rights. Doesn't have any arguments. Yet Jesus says, if you're going to be first, be a slave to others. That's, that's, that's tough stuff. Number three, last point, and then we're done. And we'll respond. We'll, we'll sing a little bit more. We're going to respond in communion about the goodness of our God. Number three, true greatness is willing to die for others. Ooh. This is what Jesus says in verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. When, the, when they got their mom to ask him, hey, can we sit in the right? And he says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. Mm-mm. They think to themselves, yeah, yeah, we, we, could, we could do that. You know, it, it might be tough at times. There might be people with, you know, if we're going to sit at the right hand and the left hand of the king, the one who rules the nation, well, yeah, I mean, there will probably be times where somebody will come to us with a really difficult situation. We can handle it, though. I mean, all that applause. You know, when we walk in the room, everyone's like, oh, there they are. Look at them. Woo! You know, we can handle that. Yeah. And Jesus is like, you have no clue what you're asking. What is this cup that Jesus is talking about? What is this? He says, are you able to drink the same cup I am? Yeah, 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 we could do that. What's this cup? This cup was the wrath of God being poured out upon Jesus for the sin of the world. This was the suffering that Jesus was to experience as he goes into Jerusalem, being rejected by the very people who should have accepted him. Being rejected by the very religious elite people who should have recognized him because they knew the scripture so well. This cup was the weight of the wrath of God being placed upon the shoulders of Jesus for you and for me. For every sin that we've ever committed, the wrath of God was poured upon Christ and Jesus absorbed every single ounce of suffering, of subjection, And they say, yeah, we're able to to deal with that. They don't get it. Uh, It says plainly in verse 28, it says, even at the the bottom here, it says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
See, if, if one of my kids was kidnapped and somebody were to elaborate this, uh, set up this, this whole sting kind of operation to get me to pay them money, they would say, we got your son Judah, we're going to kill him unless you give us $10,000. I don't have a way to pay that $10,000. I'm, I'm, I'm literally stuck in a rock in a hard place. I don't know what to do. And somebody comes in in my stead and says, hey, hey, I want to rescue your son. I want to ransom him. I'm going to win him back from the enemy. I have more than $10,000. I have all the riches in the world. I'm going to pay the ransom for your boy. That's what Jesus did for you and me. Willingly laid down his life. This cup, we see it in Matthew chapter 26. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and who? <laughs> the two sons of Zebedee. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here. Watch with me. And going a little farther, he, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, this is the beauty of what our, Father, or our, our Savior did for us, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's true greatness. <laughs> Being willing to lay down your life. Isn't it so upside down, friends? Our greatness says no others should lay down their life for me because I'm so amazing. Because I've overcome this. I, I've like literally climbed the ladder of success, right? I've done all these things that these other people haven't done and so therefore... I have all this experience and wisdom and knowledge and greatness. I should there be able to tell other people what to do. They should lay their lives down for me because I'm so great because I've overcome. Jesus says no. It's the other way around. And the only one who truly is great in that sense, the only one who is superior above us all, does the ultimate example of greatness in his definition and lays his life down for you and me. The one who shouldn't. The one who should say, I'm amazing, I am great, I'm above you all. Kneel and worship. I'll tell you what to do. You will serve me. And he says, no, I've come to serve you. I've come so that you will be great too. But not in the way that we think we're great. Let's end with, with this. Look at Colossians chapter 1. If, if we forget the weight of the act of what the great one did for us, let's remind ourselves of how amazing Jesus is. This is what it says in verse 15. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn 
of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and in invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Every atom, the reason why our bodies don't just fly apart right now, the reason why we're able to breathe every breath that we can is because Jesus is holding consistently, constantly, every day, is holding the universe together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled, ransomed in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Isn't that beautiful? Lest you forget the greatness of our King Jesus. He's preeminent. He's above all things. He's the creator. He's the one that holds all things together. Yet this one that Paul writes about is the one who displayed greatness perfectly. And then he says, you know, when you want to be great in the sense the world wants to be great and you want to exalt yourself, I've called you to be great in the sense of serving and laying down your life. And you say, man, it's too hard. I can't do this. He says, that's okay. I've done it. I've done it perfectly. I will give you the ability to do it. When you want to fight for yourselves, remember my cross. When you want to exalt yourself, Remember my cross. When you want others to bow to your will, remember my cross for you. Will you stand with me this morning?